0: All right, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to First Timothy, we will once again be in chapter one. We'll be looking again at verses one through, or sorry, verses eight through 10 of First Timothy chapter one. And because we are closing up at least this list of Paul's this week, I'll try to read uh, all of verse eight through 10.) <laughs> And uh, as you are turning there, let me just open us up in a word of prayer. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word to us, uh, that it is living and active, and, and it sharpens us, it pierces us, it instructs us. Lord, we pray that the instruction would not be lost on our ears, on our hearts, uh, that it would guide us and direct us, give to us life, and we would understand your teaching, your words and live in accordance with it. We pray this in your name. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 reads, For we know that the law is good, providing, provided one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not given for the righteous, but for the lawless and the disobedient, the unholy and the sinner, the blasphemer and the profaner, those who slay father and mother, manslayers, the sexually immoral, homosexuals, man stealers, liars, perjurers, and everything else that is against sound teaching. And uh, given the content of our text tonight, I'll also read out of Exodus chapter 20, particularly verse 16, you need not turn there, but you are more than welcome to, where the law of God reads, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So we have now come full circle in Paul's list of the law. Uh, We have come to uh, the end of his enumeration of the Ten Commandments. And one of the things I've been arguing this time that we've been studying Paul's list in 1 Timothy is that it is not an arbitrary list of sins, but as as I hope you're starting to see, it's actually overlaid almost perfectly with the Ten Commandments. Now, there are some points of dispute about which of the first four commandments actually are lined up with Paul's list, uh, or as as you might've noticed, Paul ends his list without going to the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Uh, But suffice it to say, he gets most of the 10 commandments and pretty clearly seems to follow the instruction of the 10. And that brings us to this week, the question of, well, what does Paul mean? Uh, what are we to learn as a church from his instruction to not be a liar or a perjurer? And as I'm contending, he's expounding the, tenth, the, the commandment, commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness. So I want to put to you a situation, if you will, for a moment, go with your mind to uh, World War II at the time of uh, the Allied invasion of Normandy Beach. And many of you will not know this, but in order for D-Day to happen, There was much espionage and planning and deception on the part of the Allied forces. The Allied forces knew that the D-Day mission could be doomed by failure if the Nazis even gained a 48-hour advance notice on either its location or on its timing. So in order to cloak the details of that invasion, the Allies employed a complex web of deception. Among those deceptive things that the Allies did They spoon-fed reams of faulty information to Nazi double agents so that the double agents would pass on this false information to Nazi headquarters in Berlin. They also gave the appearance of a massive troop buildup southeast of England. The Allies created a phantom fighting force headed up by their own general, uh, George Patton, who was their chief general. So uh, they appointed their best general to a false army uh, that didn't actually exist and in a false location, so the Nazis would be led astray. In addition to this, in conjunction with that phantom army, they broadcast endless hours of fictitious radio transmissions about troop supply movements, and they even planted fake wedding advertisements for soldiers who were supposed to be serving in that phantom army to the local area. They even deployed inflated Sherman tanks, so blow up tanks, which they put in different locations and moved overnight and they even used rollers, farming equipment, to simulate the tracks which would have been left behind in the wake of a tank. Additionally, the aircraft on the day of the Normandy invasion dropped hundreds of dummy paratroopers wired with audio simulations to simulate gunfire and grenades, hundreds of these fake uh, paratroopers, decoys, in various other locations to draw away from the Normandy beach location. The result of all of these efforts Uh, A successful, although brutal, invasion of Normandy Beach, which many historians would contend would not have been possible without all of that espionage. Now here's the question. Is what the Allied forces did in the maneuvering and shifting and deception, is that a violation of God's law? You shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie, as it's often summarized. Hold that thought in your mind. And let's ask a more narrow question first before we try to answer that broader ethical question. What is Paul getting at here in 1 Timothy? Part of the argument of Paul so far is that God's law is good and therefore uh, we ought to embrace these aspects of God's law and how edifying it is for the church. In this instance, uh, Paul is exhorting his, uh, his young student, Timothy, to promote and preserve truth And he's promoting that, as you'll remember in the flow of Paul's argument, against the false teachers who are promoting disruptive and false doctrines and teachings in the presence of the church. So while it is the case that Paul is listing through the Ten Commandments, I I do not find it surprising that he terminates here on the Ninth Commandment, emphasizing the importance of true speaking as Christians for the health and the vibrancy of the church. It should not be a shock to you that false teaching and bearing false witness against one's neighbor are among the most destructive things to the health and the vibrancy of a church community. You can only imagine what deception does to the trust which a church needs in order to survive. Uh, if you consider the intimacy of a family, which uh, I think Paul is putting forth as the uh, model for what a church should be like, imagine what it, what a family would look like if the husband and the wife could not trust each other, if the children had no mutual trust among themselves, if everyone looked at each other with uh, deception and suspicion, imagine what that would do to the health of a family unit. Now imagine what it does to the health of a church. Lying, bearing false witness, or here being a liar or a perjurer, uh, which is to be someone who bears false witness under oath. These are among the most insidious sins that a Christian can commit against the church and against one's neighbor. And the reason I think that it is so important for us to dwell on this, just these two commands tonight, is because these are among the sins that come the most easily to us in the West. In the age of information, in, in a time when we can get information from unverified sources and unverified mediums. And we can go ahead and relay that information on to someone else who maybe should or shouldn't be hearing about that thing. It is amazingly easy for us to spread falsehood without knowing we're spreading falsehood, to intentionally spread lies for the intent of uh, assaulting someone's character. It is possible and even uh, simple for us to jump to conclusions and rush to judgment Uh, when we don't know the factual evidence of a situation. All of these things are possible in an age where information can freely spread, uh, and, and, and we often, I think unfortunately, engage in this kind of behavior on a regular basis, especially in the West. No doubt you've probably found yourself in a situation where you realize during the conversation or during an interaction that the information being shared by you or the person you're talking to is information you probably shouldn't be talking about because it's about someone who Uh, would not be uh, comfortable if that information was being shared. Or perhaps you have felt the friction in your own heart and soul about uh, someone asking you for information that you feel like doesn't belong to them to know. Now, what do you do as a Christian? Do you lie to them and say you don't have any information to share? Or do you pass on the information telling the truth, but doing so at the expense of someone else? What, are the, what does the law of God tell us with regards to the speaking of truth or speaking of falsehood? I think massaging that out and understanding what that means is, is vital for the health of a church. So let me give a couple of affirmations of what I think this text is telling us, and then we will loop then back to the ethical question which I proposed at the beginning. Firstly, guarding truth, preserving truth, uh, is done by Christians out in the world as we bear testimony about what God's word says about the world. Most notably, you will bump into this, Christian, as it relates to the use of pronouns and gender affirming language out in the world. There are many examples that I could give, but I wanna kind of strike at the heart of this. It is a sin, it is false witness to lie about someone for their own affirmation in contradiction to what God's word says about that person. Thus, uh, there is no good or sound reason why one would use a pronoun that is not corresponding to the gender of a person in the world. Now, I say that because many of you will face situations like that this week or next week or in the months to come. And I want to encourage you, it is not wrong or sinful to speak truly about people even if that means that people are offended by what you say. This does not mean that we wield the truth as a weapon against people, but we simply speak the truth in love, knowing that sometimes people won't understand that the truth is being spoken in love. So pronouns are, are off the table for Christians. We, we speak truly about people in the world, and that puts us in many times awkward situations. Additionally, when when we speak the truth of God into the world, uh, that means that we need to understand the information of a situation before we relay that information to whoever else we're going to talk to about it. Gossip is sharing information which you don't know to be true about someone. And if it turns out to be true and you didn't know whether it was true, you just shared it, that's gossip. But often, you can slander someone by sharing information that you don't know to be true And then it turns out at the end of the day, it wasn't true, and you passed it along as though it was true. And even though you did not know the truth of it, and you passed it along anyway, you could be guilty of slander as a Christian. And so we are to to guard our our witness and our speech about other people by first understanding the truth of what we are sharing. Now, you might say, well, what is the guideline for figuring that out? I think the evidence of two or three witnesses, as Christ lays out in the law, when we confront someone in their sin, we do it on the basis of two or three witnesses. And uh, later in First Timothy, Paul says you don't admit a charge against an elder except that's on the basis of two or three witnesses. And, and, and we adhere to God's law in that because it guards us from slander. It guards us from gossip. It guards us from participating in sin, which can uh, break apart the health of the church. Additionally, uh, speaking truly in the world uh, may require that we withhold information from people who we do not owe information to. This would be the case if, let's say, you are a believer, your marriage is on the rocks, and someone who is going to uh, be a a vice to you, let's say uh, an adulterous uh, temptation comes your way, uh, and they say, are you interested in me? Are you attracted to me? And although you might be, you say, absolutely not, go away. Uh, You can speak falsely to that person and deceive them because you do not owe them the truth. Uh, such is, I think, the case many times in the, in the ethics of the world. We know that just because we have information and it's true, it doesn't mean we share that information broadly with everyone. So speaking truly in the world means we guard the truth carefully, sharing it only to who it is owed and withholding information from who we do not owe it to. Also, guarding our witness, especially as it relates to this uh, second command here in the text, perjury, means we guard what oaths we take. We guard When do we say we're going to do something? We only say it, by God's grace, if we are sure that we are going to follow through. Now, there are situations which are beyond our control, and God knows this, we are humans, but we do not say we are going to do something if we have no plans to follow through with it. You might most often encounter this when your boss asks you to do something at work, and you say rather thoughtlessly to please your boss and to please your coworker, yes, I will do that, don't worry about it, when you have no plans of following through on that thing. That would be to speak falsely, and we, and we, as Christians, guard our speech. We let our yes be yes, and our no be no. Also, especially in an information-rich world, uh, we guard our speech and our witness into the world uh, by making sure that other people's speech, when they are speaking, uh, we do not pass that along unless we can confirm the truth or the uh, veracity of statements. And lastly, uh, as I read the conclusion of these verses. Uh, Everything which is contrary to sound doctrine is what Paul is opposing in this list. You'll notice there in the text, uh, he, he lists in verse 10 the conclusion, uh, and whatever else is contrary to healthy teaching or sound teaching. If it is contrary to sound doctrine, as a Christian church, we oppose that teaching. Now, the list that he's finished giving us from verse 8 and following tells us a good deal of what is contrary to sound teaching because God's law gives us the outline and the guardrails for guarding sound teaching. But also wisdom gives us a great deal of instruction. Wisdom gives us a great deal of insight as to what we guard against and what we withhold guarding from. You might consider this, that uh, if someone comes to you with a false doctrine, a false belief, uh, you are to guard the health of a local church by guarding against those false ideas and false beliefs. It is not loving to a neighbor. It is not loving to the health of a church to tolerate blatant falsehood for the sake of affirming someone's beliefs or tolerating them in in that midst. Now, that does not mean you despise a person or slander them or even disparage an individual for their beliefs. But to accept false teaching into the church on the grounds of loving one's neighbor is actually prohibited by God's law because we are to speak the truth according to God's law. And lastly, (laughs) and lastly in the text, I wanna come back to the example which we came to in the beginning, which is to say that we are going to think about what does it mean to deceive in the context of certain ethical dilemmas or situations. It is the case, I think, uh, as you think with me from the beginning example, that the allied forces in deceiving the German soldiers were maybe maybe not in the right for doing that i might ask you a simpler question with that same thought experiment Uh, if you are a christian and you play sports let's say you play basketball is it wrong sinful for you to pump fake a shot and then to dribble and lay up the shot in one sense you are creating deception but in another sense the context of the situation actually demands deception actually even permits it i don't think god's law prohibits an over-interpretation of the text, do not lie. The text of the Ten Commandments, and in fact, if you look at the text of Exodus and Leviticus, where the command is expounded, it almost exclusively has to do with bearing false witness for the demeaning or the slandering of one's neighbor. It's almost the exclusive interpretation of that text. An overly pietistic and an overly simplistic reading of the text that says do not lie applies to every situation, regardless of scenario or consideration, puts Christians in quite awkward situations sometimes. As I I mentioned earlier, what if you're a Christian and you know someone who you love is struggling with depression? And someone comes up to you who does not, who you do not owe that information to and says, is this person struggling with this thing? And you know that they are. Do you owe them the truth? To to say, I'm not gonna answer that question is almost as, as good of a situation as confirming that someone is struggling, right? So in some situations, the truth is not owed. And in some situations, uh, certain ethical situations, according to uh, even situations you'll see in the text of scripture, lying is actually affirmed as a positive good. Now I'll let you in discussion time explore some of these texts, but you can consider Judges chapter two, where Rahab deceives the, the, the leader of Jericho, the king of Jericho. She says, the spies are not with me. I do not know where they're going. I don't even know if they're Israelites. And in Hebrews, she is affirmed for her act of faith. In so doing, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter one are God fearers. And thus, they lie to Pharaoh and say, we are going to we 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 don't even know when these Hebrew boys are being born. There's so many examples of this in the text of Scripture that uh, I'm going to leave discussion for you to explore most of them. But suffice it to say, let's say in conclusion of, of the whole of the text tonight, God's law is something that as Christians, we ought to love. And as, as you're looking at the list from 8 through 10, one of the things I want you to understand is the law of God is not a holdover from the Old Testament, which we are slowly breaking free from as Christians. The law of God is something which is, let's say, the backbone of health, even for the church. There are certain basic rules which one cannot violate. If you consider the human body and certain laws of health, you might consider that there are certain laws which you cannot violate. You cannot not sleep and be healthy. You cannot eat garbage all the time and expect to be healthy. You cannot skip eating food at all and expect to be healthy. There are certain things which law and and natural law would tell us you cannot violate and still have health. That is, I think, much of what Paul is getting at here. (coughs) God's law, God's moral law, is something which cannot be violated or transgressed if a church is to be healthy and functioning and thriving in its community. Now that does not mean the law of God is is all of what a church uh, aspires towards, just faithfulness there, because there are many things which a church ought to do like preaching the gospel and sharing the grace of God into the world that a church must do also to be healthy, but certainly it it is not less than observing and, and obeying God's law. Lastly, we can consider this list from Paul to be a somewhat rough sketch of what he's gonna argue for the rest of the letter is to be contrasted with healthy teaching. In fact, in every instance, from what we're gonna see in the rest of 1 Timothy, the false teachers either engage in vain doctrinal teaching, which does not edify or build up, as we've seen earlier in the text, but also they violate the very law of God, proposing either through intellectual stimulation or through their own speculation that they have license to do so and Paul setting up boundaries that God's law is a, a reflection of his character his morality his goodness and thus you can sniff out false teaching by spotting the people who would violate God's law and promote going against God's law though that's a that's a dead giveaway that someone is a false teacher and and Paul outlines this before he gets into his argument so that you know when we're reading through this text we can point back to these verses and we go oh I see here how this false teacher is violating this command, or I see over here how this false teacher is promoting something which God's law prohibits. In all of these things, as a Christian, we are are given God's law not only for our own health, not only for the health of our church, but also so we can guard the health of our church and and the health of our bodies well. So it's not just enough for us to know God's law. We also must ourselves practice God's law, and we must preserve God's law from every teaching which would assail it. Now, there's so many instances that we can get into, and I think Paul in the rest of his letter is really going to help us flush much of this out. So let me just close with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into some discussion. Our Father in God, we are forever indebted to you for your revelation to us. It is a gift which sanctifies us. It cleanses our minds. It helps us to see clearly. And Lord, mostly, your law serves as a a guidance to us. It gives us clarity of thought, clarity of speech. It lets us know what is in bounds and out of bounds. And Lord, in all these things, we are edified as your people. We ask that we would seek to understand, and we be given the grace to understand all of your truth. And Lord, that we would, at places where we are not so sure, that we would rather stop our mouths from speaking than question your goodness in your word. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen.